Welcome to Clinical Corner. I'm your host, Leslie Kamenoff, and I've been a yoga educator since 1979. And most of that time, I've had the privilege of learning from working with individuals. In each episode of this podcast, I'll chat with other clinicians about the history, techniques, and stories related to the healing work they do with their clients. The premium version of this episode, in which my guest and I review and analyze a video recording of them working with a client in a private session, is available by subscription at breathingproject.com. Now, let's get to our episode. Welcome to the third episode of my podcast, Clinical Corner, in which I have a free-ranging discussion with my dear old friend, Gary Kraftsau, who I have known since 1987. In fact, you will hear us uh, talk about, towards the beginning of this discussion, uh, how he really became my uh, entree into the world of Desikachar and his teachings. Uh, our previous two guests, uh, Libby and Robin, uh, also have studied uh, in this tradition. Uh, Gary has been studying longer than just about anyone I know, and uh, he has been a pioneer in the field of yoga therapy and yoga education, uh, as well as uh, playing a major part in the uh, original discussion of uh, standards for training for yoga therapists. And all of that gets covered, plus so much more in this discussion. So without further ado, here is my talk with Gary Kraftsau. I hit the uh, record button, so now um, we're not going to say anything that uh, we would consider to be off the record. <laughs> and Lord knows, considering we've known each other for so long, there could be a lot of that if we uh, if we wanted to. But uh... <laughs> indeed, I'm, I was if we're trying to remember, you know, when we first met it with Larry, maybe in nineteen eighties, I guess. Oh, well, it was. Like, in, I know exactly where and when it was. Is it Murrieta Hot Springs? Oh, Murrieta. Okay. Unity and Yoga Conference there, and that would have been 1987. 87. Yeah, and well, you, you've heard me tell the story of how I I tracked you down basically because I read the. Um, uh, David Frawley's article. The David Frawley article, right, in Yoga Journal, where he had uh, met you on Maui, and he was. Impressed with uh, what you Big were Island. Doing. We were doing, we were co-teaching. It was the Big Island. We were co not Maui, but the oh, Big what? Island. Okay, we're, Big Island. All right. We were co-teaching uh, along with uh, Dr. Vasant Lad, Amadea Morningstar, and I think his name was Van Houten. I forgot his a massage guy. Uh-huh. And that's, we were, we were both, we all just like appeared at this retreat center on the Big Island, and, mm. and, and me and David just like connected and it was like, oh, like, oh my God, it was, it became, we were up all night talking and. I'll bet, I'll bet. Uh, first time meeting David, considering your background must have been kind of a mutual brain dump. <laughs> yeah, I remember what he told me. He was in Motilal Barnasidas, which is a bookstore. Sure. Uh, yeah. And and a, like a he reached up and a book fell on his head. Yes, I heard that. <laughs> Some story like that and. Uh, and it was this, something about the Samaveda, I think. I, I don't remember very well anymore the story, but that's how he got. No, that was how, that was me. That's how I had heard of David. Sorry. I was in Multilal Barnasidas in Madras, which now is called Chennai, obviously. And uh, I reached up for a book and a, a, a Samaveda book fell on my head. And that, you know, not hurt me or anything, but just like fell down. And it was David's book. And that's how I had heard him. And then I returned from India and I was scheduled to teach on the Big Island. And that's when I met him. And that would have been what, early in 87? 
uh, you know, I think I think I was in India. You know, I'm 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 old now, so now you're challenging my age-related memory loss. But I was it, no, it was before that because I was in India in eighty-two, eighty-three. It was probably in eighty-four or eighty-five. Hmm. I can't be sure. I, I could check. I have to okay. just. And that that would make sense because it'd take a while to you know for the thing to get written and then published and then for me to read it and then to show up uh, tracking you down in '87 and then in '88 of course is when I met um, Desikachar for the first time at, at uh, Colgate because you're the one that told me that that's where yeah, it yeah. be yeah, uh, yeah and and the rest is and the rest is history yes but uh, just to just to back up a bit because some of the people um, who are listening to this may, you know, believe it or not, never have heard of you, um, which is inexcusable. But uh, just for those folks, and to just clarify uh, a little bit um, where I'd like to take the, the conversation, you know, we all have, you know, origin stories that we've told over and over again, um, from various perspectives and to different audiences. Um, but since this is clinical corner, um, and the focus is on uh, the kind of work that folks like you and I do and other people like us who are interested in this sort of thing. Um, the way I'd like to sort of get into your origin story is just to, to ask at what point, well, let's put it this way. There's a lot of words that we could use to describe what folks like us do uh, at various times and in various capacities. Uh, words like um, yoga practitioner, uh, yoga teacher, and you know variants of that educator instructor uh in your case also scholar uh is an, an appropriate uh title and and some and you're studiously words, avoiding the word therapist i see well i'm i'm getting there i'm okay. getting there. <laughs> but that's just you knowing my history um yeah. but another word that could apply to us which is is relevant uh is performer because we're up on a stage a lot uh, in front of people um, and, and not just showing or demonstrating. Um, I mean, I think, for example, of, of Iyengar, whose entire teaching life started as a performer, really, uh, of asana, right? So all of these things could apply to us at some point, but words like therapist, which I'm, I'm obviously getting to, or clinician, at what point in your history, your evolution, did you start to think of yourself that way? Oh, wow, what an interesting question. Um, that's an interesting question. So, you know, I I, I want to go back a little bit just sure, quickly. Sure. I mean, and, and I apologize, but I know who you are. I don't know who your audience is. So you this is a public audience, perhaps. So please forgive me for this truth. But <laughs> I had uh, I was a, a gymnast in high school. Mm -hmm. And I had um, hurt my back visiting a friend lifting weights. And his mother, and this must have been in the 19th, late 60s, perhaps. Mm. His mother was actually the first, at least we, that we knew about, yoga teacher in Philadelphia. Mm. I grew up in Philadelphia, as you know. Yeah. And she put me in, and I pulled a muscle in my lower back, and she put me in what I now know is Vajrasana, what the community calls child's pose. Mm -hmm. right. And uh, and she said, stay there for a little while. And my back got better. 
Okay, that's interesting. And then, and then I went to Colgate, as you know, in 1972, and I took a, a yoga class with Mary Lou Skelton, who had been a student of Krishnamacharya. And I, this is where I'm apologizing for. You may know this story. And I swear, you know, I, you know, was an undergraduate, didn't know anything really about diet and food, eating university food. Anyway, I came out of the first asana class and had the most incredible bowel movement that I ever remembered. And, it, you know, it's an embarrassing thing to say, but, you know, so my low back hurt and she put me in child's pose. Then years later, I took a real yoga class from a, a class mm -hmm. from a woman who had was a student of Krishnamacharya. And the first thing I noticed was my bowels moved in a way that I just, wow, like I knew something was there. Um, I went though to India to study yoga uh, because I was more interested in why people or how to face death, why people suffer, you know, the dishonesty of my, you know, of relationship and the challenges and all that. So I was a student of Patanjali and Vedic teachings, and that's what brought me to India. And Deskachar really helped me understand that all of the tools of yoga have individual value therapeutically for each of the different dimensions of who we are. And then collectively, they work together to help us evolve, uh, overcome sources of suffering and achieve our potential in this life. Um, so he really uh, taught me the, the therapeutic understanding of yoga from early on. Mm. Um, and the, and I, I never came to, I didn't go to India to become a yoga teacher, but I remember that there were some Europeans there at a certain point, And I don't, I'd, I'd have to think maybe it was in the late 1970s or maybe the early 1980s, I think it was the late seventies where he asked me to teach some Europeans who are having certain problems so it was really in the late 70s that I had actually under the auspices of Deskachar that I had my first experience of helping someone learn how to use yoga to address their problems. So I'd say different than thinking on. of yourself as a clinician, as, as oh. you know, uh, an idea. I didn't think of myself as a clinician uh, yeah. until I, I don't even know that I think of myself as a clinician. I think I'm of myself. Yeah, I mean, I. Help me understand the meaning of the word clinician. What do you mean by that? Well, okay, because I can actually relate that to, because I've asked myself this question as well. And um, for me, it was the first time I was left alone in a room with someone with the door closed and I was expected to help them with whatever skills I had at my disposal. And I distinctly remember uh, a feeling of panic washing over me because it was like oh my goodness this is like a real person with a genuine problem and they put me in here to help them and what the hell do i do um and there was something from within myself that i had to uh pull out of myself in order to express a certain amount of uh confidence whether it was well founded or not is irrelevant i had to project it to that person and uh, in that situation and so look leslie i mean i, I want to just you know i want to be honest in fact i have things you and i 
could usefully in this forum talk about some differences of opinion about what yoga therapy really is. Yeah. And I'm happy to get that out publicly, by the way. But so just to be clear, I remember in the 70s, Deskachar giving me assignments. Mm-hmm. He would, I, he, they were paper cases. He would say, 40-year-old athlete with back problem, 35-year-old mother, sleep issues. And I would draw sequences. This was in the 1970s. So already from the beginning, when he started training me, he taught me to think about a, the application of yoga to help people with conditions. The first time I actually did it was in India with him, uh-huh. not in the room, but him assigning me to do it. Mm. But I had already done a year of those kinds of case studies with him. And he had confidence in my ability. So honestly, for me, it was really from the beginning of my teaching. And when I opened my first business, it was not called American Vini Yoga Institute, as you know that story. It was called Maui Yoga Therapy. And I opened Maui Yoga Therapy in 1983. Mm -hmm. So in 1983, my business was called Maui Yoga Therapy. So I was already in my self-concept doing therapeutic work, seeing only individuals. I didn't teach group classes. For the first many years of my teaching, I didn't teach group classes until who's now my ex-wife said, you know, Gary, you need to do some group classes because I was just teaching one-on-one. So I would say from the beginning of my teaching, really. Now, at what point in that timeline did you decide to go and get the um, uh, massage license? Because I know that was another... Uh, I forgot about that. Yeah. Qualification so, you had. Yeah. Yeah. In the early 1980s, um, uh, my first clientele were injured Ashtanga yogis. Yes. And uh, and then injured, like um, what we would call in Hawaii, Hawaii women, white women who had come from the mainland to live in Maui and were all excited about hula and would go to the traditional halals to learn hula dancing. And so they had knee and hip injuries. And then I ended up having ballet dancers. So I I began working with a lot of athletes, dancers, and yoga practitioners who were injured. Mm -hmm. And some of them uh, uh, had gone to certain chiropractors. And they some of those chiropractors were in the same town that I was working. We became friendly. And they wanted to refer people to me. And they said, Gary, you need some legal precedent, A, to touch people and mm-hmm. B, uh, to use no fault and work comp insurance. Right. And so, uh, and, and in the state of Hawaii, it was a fairly serious uh, massage license. And some of the people that started the original s- massage schools uh, in Hawaii were those who were involved in, 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 in um, what's the phrase in Congress, you know, to, to get massage as a professional license. So it wasn't just looked at as, as prostitution. Yeah. They were, uh, the entire profession back then was actively lobbying, lobbying, that's the word I was government to, uh, to do yeah. that because there was that problem with massage and its association with prostitution. Right. And it was actually being regulated by the local police departments who would check you out to make sure that you weren't right. doing happy endings or whatever. Um, so that woman who ran that massage school actually ended up becoming a student of mine. And so the chiropractor said, you need a massage lesson. She said, I can help you learn to do that. You have to go to, you have to study. You have to go to Honolulu and take the test. And I did it. I got that, but I never really, I never practiced. I, I got enough experience to be able to pass a, a written and live test. And I flew to Honolulu for that, hmm. uh, but I never used the license 
for massage. We would build neuromuscular re-education or, you know, we would use certain yeah. codes that the doctor- Okay, so you know it. By heart. And, and that's how that happened. You know, it was interesting too, Leslie, because I came to yoga as a student of religion. Yeah. Uh, but my earliest first work were people with structural problems. But then mm. it kind of evolved after that pretty quickly to helping people with their energy, with their sleep, with pain management, and then with anxiety. And, you know, it just evolved very quickly. So I, would, I went back to India to get more technical training in yoga therapy. Ah, see, now that's interesting. So- um, so maybe, maybe this word clinician isn't something that has been part of your general way of self-identifying. Never, never. I never thought of my, I understand the word and I don't sure. think it's an inappropriate word, but it's not part of the word that I used. Therapy. My teacher used the word chikitsa and therapy. So I thought of myself as a yoga teacher and a yoga therapist. And mm -hmm. no, my, my self-concept first is I'm a yoga student and a yoga practitioner, but then I'm a yoga teacher and a therapist. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And a gentleman. But I think that I understand that is what you mean by I apologize. Yeah. I'm drinking coffee. <laughs> and I do this intermittent fasting, so I don't eat until like lunch. Oh, yeah, I've been doing that. I have, I have a 100 pound Rhodesian Ridgeback who came down the stairs. Can I just need to open the door for her. Oh, the dog's still there. Yeah, go ahead. Just one sec. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And, and that reminds me, um, I usually start all the interviews this way just to sort of geolocate you. I'm in New York. Most people know that by now. And you are where exactly? I'm in the San Francisco Bay Area on the Oakland-Berkeley border. Mm -hmm. And I've and been here since 2008. Mm -hmm. Yes, and I have visited you there. It's a lovely yes, uh, home and you have a whole set up now and uh the thing that was occurring to me before i hit record when we were, were chatting is the last time i was there visiting with you you were saying well you know i don't know if i even want to renew my passport um <laughs> <laughs> and then you did and then the entire world stopped traveling i know <laughs> and i did that one trip in 2019 i went uh to Ire Scotland and Ireland and France and uh, for that reunion, that 40-year reunion. And I haven't traveled since then. Yeah. Well, you did travel in 2018 to um, the Berkshires. Uh, yes, indeed. For your... The, yeah, yeah, for, for the, the, yeah. the 80th uh, birthday celebration for Jessica Char, what would have been his 80th birthday. Um, and I was thinking, uh, is that the last time I actually saw you in person, I know the last time we had a Zoom was um, when I put that uh, uh, honoring Rama, Rama, the Rama Jyoti Vernon thing together after yeah. Rama passed. Yeah. I believe so, Leslie. I don't think I've seen you since 2018 because 2019 I went to France and I, yeah. 2020, I took my last flight. Uh, the last time I got stepped on an airplane was in uh, March 2020. You, so, and, and, you say stuck or stuffed? I stepped. Oh, stepped. Okay. I stepped on an airplane. But that was a short flight. I was in Southern California. And I, I flew back. I was teaching in Southern California. And I flew back to the Bay Area. 
Yeah, well, I, I was uh, 75,000 miles a year. I haven't yeah. stepped on a plane since March 2020. Yeah, wow. You must have a lot of miles you're not using. I do. <laughs> so, yeah, well, I was in March of 2020. I was in Sydney, as I think you know, and, and yeah. got the COVID and came back and was sick. And and then, you know, here we are. Two and a half it's been years an interesting later. journey, hasn't it, these past right. two years? Yeah. But the, the thing I was I was working my way up to is you've got a whole setup now where you can teach from where you are. Uh, yes. Like many of us have been doing on, on Zoom. Yes. And, and you've been conducting uh, trainings and workshops and interviews from the comfort of your own property. You know, it's very interesting that, I, you know, I had always thought, because like I said, 75,000 miles a year, and I began teaching and traveling in because I lived on Maui for some 30 mm -hmm. years or so that the, I, I would fly a lot to the mainland. So from the 1980s, I've been living a, my life teaching as a, a wandering yeah. yoga, a flying yoga teacher. You know, <laughs> my ex-wife used to joke that I used the airplane like most people use a bus or a taxi, you know, and, um, and I'd never really thought about, um, being able to teach online and i thought that one day i'll have time to stop traveling and be still and go inward so in my personal situation i mean i have a lot of compassion for what's the suffering people have been going through in, in these past few years but for me it's been a blessing because i've hardly left where you see me now this is where i spend 15 hours a day every day for the past couple of years. And I'm just immersed in these teachings. Mm. Uh, it's like a, it's like an enforced retreat. And then I'm offering online classes about topics that I never really had a chance to go deeply into. Mm. And then of course the trainings and the, uh, uh, the events that I teach in different cities through zoom and in different countries through zoom, it's been an extraordinary opportunity. And, and I've been impressed because of our trainings and our work with people and looking at their home study and everything that it's become, I, I was amazed at how effective uh, work, how much effective work we can do through this medium. Me as well. And, and um, in the more group oriented things, the um, degree of uh, agency that each student has uh, using this medium uh, exceeds in some ways uh, what you can do in a live situation in terms of whether you want to be seen or not, whether your camera is on or not, or whether you're even present or not. You know, it's a lot easier to hit that red button yeah. down there than it is to roll up your mat and walk out of a room with a teacher. That's very, <laughs> it's a lot of chutzpah to do that. And not many people do, even though they may desperately want to escape for whatever reason. And, you know, so, here, here you got the red button. Uh, right, know. and then you can see the, the recording on your own time. Yeah, you can hit replay or pause or fast forward. It's, it's really very versatile in many ways. And obviously, there is nothing that could ever replace um, being in the physical presence of uh, each other and your, your teacher. And It's true. Yeah. There's so, an energetic thing. And I know that there are a lot of people that went through program that just completed with me and they're like, you know, they're really hoping that for the clinical applications part of our program mm. that we can do it in person. Uh, and, and I'm like, I'm, Oh yeah. I wonder, I, I'm wondering, we just don't know. Uh, yeah. It seems like we're back in an uptick again. A, a little bit. Four and five. Yeah. 
But um, but you do now have um, you've always had a worldwide stage, but uh, with Zoom and its capabilities, um, time zones notwithstanding, uh, it really quite literally is a worldwide um, audience for yeah. these sort of things that you do and and that you know folks like us in general do. And I was wondering as we were talking, um, you have some very long term students that you are remaining connected with. Um, how far back do some of these relationships go that you still I have? students from the 1980s that are still studying with me. Mm-hmm. And some of them are, uh, you know, from the 1980s and 1990s are even on our faculty now mm-hmm. and, and teach. Um, so the relationship is good. You know, the thing for me is that I have never been and it's a failing, uh, a marketing maven. Um, my, my focus has been just the, the, the study and practice and teaching. Mm. Um, and then, uh, you know, my story that I had that, those brain surgeries. Uh, well, I and, do, but our audience doesn't. So that was just a little bomb you dropped there. Why don't you just back <laughs> up, just back up well, and no, tell them what it, was happening back then? Well, that was back in 2004. I had, uh, and I'll, I'll come back to that. The point I was going to make is in, after that first brain surgery, I used to do everything more or less myself with one person that used to help me when I lived on Maui. Yeah. And in 2004, I, you know, I, I had big training programs. We had 80 people in our teacher training mm-hmm. program. And then I was not competent to do any of the work. All I could do was focus on the teaching. And mm. so I gave over all the business end and that mm. to people that worked for me. And I've never picked that stuff back up. So my, the good thing for me is that I've been able to just stay focused on the study and practice and teaching of yoga, yoga therapy and the inner uh, teachings that I offer uh, now. And, and, and then I had a team that did everything else. So the good news is I could focus on the work. The bad news of course, is I had a, I made much less money because although we were earning more as a business, it was more being paid out to everybody. Yeah, it increases your overhead. Uh, yeah, significantly. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, and, and so, yeah, but I mean, people like I teach through Zoom in Europe. I just was interviewed with a big group in India. You know, it just spreads by, by word of mouth. Mm-hmm. And uh, my focus is really the work, not self-promotion and that's why like you said a lot of people don't know about what we're doing in yoga because we're not popular like some of them were sure and a lot of people who may be familiar with your name um probably don't know what you were dealing with back in 04 um because uh i mean your whole life blew up really around that time didn't it and and i remember you talking about how the teachings were so deeply embedded in in your your brain and your your psyche that you were chanting sutras um, in recovery. And well, that was that particular story, Leslie, yeah. is in the uh, 1978 when I was in graduate school. In I was in graduate school studying Sanskrit in, in mm-hmm. University of California, Santa Barbara. And I was in a landslide mm-hmm. and I was knocked unconscious. 
Mm. And I was in the IC unit and friends came to see me and they, the nurses said I was making these weird sounds. And he said, you were chanting yoga sutras in the, in the IC. Am unit. I conflating that story with the brain surgery? Or yeah, that, that particular okay. story, the brain surgery, that was, that was 2004. So this other brain injury, yeah. like I just needed the hard hit on the head, I guess, to wake up. And that one didn't do it enough. So I had to have another one in 2004. But in 78, that chanting of Yoga Sutra was 1978. Wow. In the IC unit. Okay. Of course, so I, I had spent two years I in India. Two brain that. injury stories there. I, my apologies. Uh, I, no, 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 it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, what was happening when I was going into the, uh, the 2004 brain surgery is I was using lots of mantra. Mantra, yeah. Yeah. And particularly the Mahamritan Jaya was a big one. And then the Panchamaya just sort of came to me, the chant about Annamaya, Pranamaya, Manomaya, Vijnanamaya, Anandamaya, Meshudyanta. And it was just about going through, it was a meditation that came to me, going through every part of my body, from every cell in my body and physiology and my emotions and my mind, and just, you know, expressing gratitude for the gift of this life and, and each part and, and cheer, being cheerleader for my cells to heal and all of that. That just sort of came to me. Uh, but, and that, but this, the sutra story was definitely from the 1978. Okay. Right. And by the way, for those of you who, the other mantra that you mentioned, Mahamatunjaya, that's the Triambagam Yajamehe uh, yeah. that many people may have heard at ashrams or various other places where things are chanted in Sanskrit. I used that many hours a day, every day for the week leading up to my first big brain surgery. Hmm. That was the big one. That was the traumatic one. I was, I couldn't stand for two weeks afterwards when I could, and my vision was total. I had complete double vision. So the whole world looked different. Mm. Uh, and that's when the Panchamaya meditation came. I couldn't chant out loud. I could do it all mentally because of the, the pressure in my brain from that surgery. But beforehand it was Mahamritan Jaya before the surgery. Mm. Yeah, well, it's a it's a hell of a story, and um, we, of course, uh, in New York, we're hearing the news, and uh, that's the same mantra we were chanting on our end. <laughs> Just I was so grateful you know. for uh, the love and support from you guys and people that I knew from around the world. Yeah, it was touching over for a while. We weren't there was no certainty that you would make it out of that. It no. was, and I had never really hardly been sick. You know, I had mono at one point when I was, otherwise, you know, I was about 48 and I really was very healthy and mm. never had any sickness. And and that was right at the point where my 20-year marriage was ending as well. So, yes, you're right. It was a, it was well, a that's kind of what I meant. I, I, did, I was yeah. giving you the opportunity to talk about it, but I wasn't going to bring it up. <laughs> well, it, what happened was, and 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 we knew, and we, we love each other still, but we knew that our relation, we had a son and we knew our relationship really was not fulfilling either of us. And so one of the things that, you know, one of my students showed up for a program and I, sorry, I'm in brain surgery. So she came to Honolulu and she, she said, she, when I was coming out and I can't remember this, she said, when I came out of brain surgery, I was pointing up. Like mm. you can't see that. I was like, I was lying on my back pointing straight up. Uh -huh. Uh, I don't know whether that means I was some reincarnated yogi standing on one foot with this finger pointing to God. But um, and then she asked me what I she told me afterwards. She said, Gary, what are you learning? And I raised she said, I raised my hand like this and went like that. 
So from a clenched fist to an open fist. Letting go. This is audio only for the first part, so I have to narrate. Yeah, that's all right. I'm letting go. I'm yeah. opening my, yeah, right. I'm opening my hand. And the letting go, um, what I understood was all my ideas about what I should and shouldn't do hmm. dissolved. And what was important was what's most important, what was most precious hmm. to me. And that was my son and this new woman that I had met who I'm still living with 20 years later. Yes. Uh, and, and, and my fear about what will the community think if I don't maintain a, a dysfunctional marriage, all of that dis- disappears. And me and my wife, my ex-wife, you know, we harmoniously separated and, you know, everything was fine with that. But for me, it was like a big letting go of all my ideas about how things should be. Mm. And then just uh, what emerges, what was most precious mm. and important for me. Yeah, well, something like that does help you sort out your priorities pretty quickly. Um, yeah, I don't. I wouldn't wish it on anyone, but I'll tell you this. For me, it changed my work as well because, and I don't feel like I knew something different, but when I was then after, subsequent to that experience, I had much more people coming to me who had life-threatening and even terminal conditions. Mm. And I was much, I was more able to be present with them in a way that was meaningful and helpful for them. Mm. Because going through that level of uh, near-death, what can I say, experience, shifted something in me, I I guess. Uh, Did it challenge or reaffirm uh, any convictions or beliefs that you had at the time about the nature of the soul and its um, permanence or impermanence uh, beyond a single life in a single body? You know, that's a really interesting question. I mean, you, you've heard me say that early on, I was young and a religious studies student, and, and mm-hmm. there weren't many of my colleagues who evidently I found out later, Deskichar talked to, but he told me that the whole purpose of this yoga is for preparation for the moment of death. So, and I was in my early 20s. So my mm-hmm. surgery was 20, you know, in, at 48 was my first brain surgery. So I had already known about impermanence. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that the yoga was, and, and then the teaching is, of course, that, that who we truly are is unchanging and it, it you know, transcends life and death, birth and death. Um, so I have some kind of faith in that. The brain surgery didn't, uh, uh, it, just, it just deepened my sense of presence, I, mm-hmm. I guess. Um, and I don't know, I can't, I don't know what else to say about it. I, I feel like I have faith. I take strength from these teachings. I have some, I would say the word faith, um, hmm. challenging word in the modern world, but and not, in, not in, in belief, but a feeling of, of, of like that there's something that's beyond what I can understand. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and uh, it, it, it gives me strength in the face of mm. the challenges that continue in, in life, including the global situation that we're in now. Sure. I'm sorry to, that I almost interrupted you there, but That's um, all right. when you say the word faith in English, I'm assuming the one that's echoing inside your head is Shraddha. Yes, um, definitely. Shraddha. Yeah. And is faith 
the best word we have in English to express that idea? I'm asking for a specific reason. It has to do with my history with Desigachar, actually. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, there's a false etymology of Shraddha, which is that Da is support. And so Shraddha is the place where you feel refuge, where your heart finds support. Mm -hmm. it, it's very different than belief, mm -hmm. which is ideas and formulas. Faith is an experience of the, what I call the heart mind. But, you know, the, it's a, a, a feeling of connection or uh, to something that your mind can go bigger than your mind or you can't really fully understand or go to, but it's a feeling of sort of, I don't know, I think the word refuge, confidence is one of the Sanskrit translations of the word shraddha. You feel confident, mm -hmm. you feel support. Um, it, it's, as I said, and you, you smiled when I said, it, it's a difficult word to talk about now because people confuse faith and belief. And then belief is in formulas and ideas that can become dogma. And by the way, dogma is not a bad word in its theological context. The belief expresses faith through language, uh, you know, and, and, and uh, but faith is an experience of the heart. Yeah, but it also has the connotation um, of belief in the absence of or even the possibility of proof. and becomes problematic in, in that shading of its use. Well, I would say, I, I would maybe slightly disagree. You can have faith and then accept the beliefs of the lineage or the dogma that is, that, that, and I don't mean dogma negatively. Mm -hmm. I mean, dogma has a negative connotation, but the, the teachings, the philosophy that is associated with the lineages that, that's connected to the source that you have faith in, but I think that those things are belief uh, in belief in something that you don't have proof. But faith is, a, I think of faith as, and, and, and actually, you know, I have an academic training in religious studies. So I think faith, the way I understand faith, it's not belief. It's a feeling of the heart. It's a, it's a, it's this connection, a support, a sense of refuge. Uh, so and it doesn't, it doesn't yeah. require proof. It's not, it's not an intellectual thing. So the, the da in, you know, shraddha as support is something you, you, you do relate to. Yeah. Yeah. So you guess Desikachar in 1988, at that first time, the first time I met him at that Colgate seminar, he uh, pulled me aside after one of the talks and I was brand new to all of this. And, you know, I'm forever grateful, by the way, for, for you and Larry Payne putting in a good word for me. Um, because I was desperately trying to get into the second week of the. I do remember. Yeah. Yes, um, and I'll never forget. Um, and he had been talking about shraddha in that session, and he asked me what I thought it was. That sounds like him. Yes, um, and I said that. I thought it was something like a willingness to surrender to dharma. Beautiful. And that touched him somehow. Yeah, yeah, it's very beautiful, Leslie. I mean, we could have a longer discussion about what surrender is and what mm. dharma is as well. But the idea of recognizing dharma mm. and 
and living, letting that Dharma guide your life, mm. which means surrendering your own other impulses, dysfunctional habits. That to me is a beautiful definition of faith. But there's that da, there's that same root again there, isn't it? And da support, yeah. The da from Shraddha and Dharma. Yeah. Leslie, I think you know, I just want to share this with you, um, because we're talking about faith, that one of my great teachers in life, and I've been blessed to have several, mm-hmm. not just Eskashara, of course. Um uh, and, and, and and also Krishnamacharya, who I didn't have much of a relationship with, but he says very specific things to me, one of which uh, was in relation to Ishvara Pranidhana. Hmm. And uh, that he told me, Krishnamacharya directly to me, that Viveka Kyati, Purusha Kyati, Ishvara Kyati, same, same. Okay, you don't have to translate that for uh, yeah. the rest of um, the world. Yeah. That is... That the uh, so viveka is discernment. The the old translation we used to use is discrimination, but that word has other connotations that therefore make it confusing in the modern context. But mm-hmm. the ability to see what is true and what mm-hmm. is real, the dawning of the dawning meaning like sunrises and the light dispels the darkness. So the kya, the realization of what's real or true. Mm. That's Viveka Kyati. That's a goal in yoga. Purusha Kyati is the realization of our true self as the unchanging source of pure awareness that transcends time and space, that isn't that doesn't die, etc. In the yoga community, mm-hmm. that's self-realization. You can call Purusha Kyati self-realization. Ishvara Kyati means God realization in the same way that Kyati is the same word that mm. the light dispels the darkness. So when you realize what's true, you realize who you are and you you see God. That's what Krishnamacharya told me. Mm-hmm. And you also know, I want to just add to this point because it just came to me now, but one of my, I was talking earlier about, I've had the blessings of many great teachers. One of them was Raimundo Panikar, mm-hmm. who you may have heard me talk about. Panikar yeah, was, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, he's gone now. He was a Roman Catholic priest. He was half Indian. He was, a, he had PhDs in phys- in chemistry and theology and philosophy and wrote books in original and eight languages, some extraordinary mind. Um, and he said that faith, he understood faith. He explained faith as the connection with that, which is beyond the mind. And that the function of faith is to help us connect with what transcends our mind and our ability to understand. Um, or that something that we haven't yet fully awakened to, that we have faith in, like you said, well, we don't have proof, but we have that faith. And he said, beliefs are an expression of faith that's embodied in ideas and formulas. And beliefs convey faith, and faith can find expression and belief, but they're different. Mm-hmm. Anyway, this is an interesting. Yeah. Well, you know, that brings me around to something more uh, clinically uh, oriented that... Um, as I was doing the research before uh, starting this chat, um, in I think it was a, a video I was looking at. Uh, you were you you made um, a comparison between the 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 Vedas uh, as uh, Shruti revealed teachings that were literally heard by the rishis that originated somewhere else, somewhere divine. Um, and you made a connection between that as it exists in our world of yoga and in the, the medical world, for them, their shruti uh, is evidence. Um, which very different, isn't it? Which is kind of the opposite of faith, in, and, and that's related to this discussion that we're having. And yet you have had 
in your career an opportunity to straddle that conversation by being part of a team that designs some studies uh, about yoga and back pain, studies that were published in the Annals of Internal Medicine that actually did provide sufficient evidence for people in the medical world to um, be confident in referring people to yoga for therapy. How's that for a segue? Well, um, yeah, that's a great one. I, although, let me clarify one thing. When I, when I equated Shrukti and faith in the revealed word hmm. to AMA, <laughs> it wasn't uh, in relation to evidence. That is, pe people in the, in, and especially the uneducated, but even medical doctors, have faith in a system that they don't understand. They have faith in it. They believe the doctors know. As we go deeper into it, we know that evidence-based is also sort of a misnomer. And there's plenty of things that are so-called evidence-based that are in fact not evidence-based mm -hmm. or that are misinformation. Let's not get into that, which we now see in the current, current you know, COVID world, there's lots of misinformation. And so we can't really anymore have faith in. Mm -hmm. What I was talking about back then is people turn to the AMA you know, in medicine and they have faith in that, even though they don't really understand it. Well, that's not what you were talking about in the thing that I was, you were talking about have doctors having confidence in referring people to yoga because there is now some published evidence. There you go. For them, they have, yeah, they don't know the yoga, but they have faith in the journal that says yes. there is, Yes. this is real, right? So yes. they have faith in someone else telling mm -hmm. them that, you know, that's Agama, as you know, in Sanskrit, that's, mm -hmm. you know, we know because we trust that, valid source of knowledge that's kind of the mm -hmm. the idea of agama but yeah because you know there this is real and uh, the yoga is real and the therapeutic potential is important and real and we need it in this current healthcare crisis that we've been in for the past 50 years or maybe always that is people gaining more skills and tools to manage their own condition because there's so much that we can do for ourselves. So many of the conditions that glut our hospitals that people are suffering from are lifestyle related. Hmm. And if people make some changes in their own life and take some things away that they're doing or eating or habits and add some things that are simple, they can do with movement and breathing and changing their diet and meditating uh, and stress management. A lot of the problems people have can be managed, if not even healed. Some can be healed. Some can. Absolutely. And I, I think the, the thing I love most about Desika Char's way of presenting all of this was that when all of those things that you just mentioned are presented to somebody in the context of a caring, attentive relationship with another human being, that's the foundation that makes it all work. Because as you know, he would often say, well, if the relationship is good, you know, and your technique is maybe not the best, you'll still get good results. Whereas you can have the best technique in the world, but if, if you're no good at relationship, you're not going to get great results. Well, let's say you may or may not. It, yeah. you know, because part of it is even if you have great technique and bad relationship, then you may not be able to inspire your client to do their own practice. 
So something happens through the relationship and something happens through their practice. Mm -hmm. And we've had this discussion, you and I, and and I don't mean to say anything politically, but all true (laughs) yoga, let me say it, all true yoga and yoga therapy are practice based. Mm -hmm. You're empowering individuals to do something for themselves. Yoga therapy isn't what happens in a session between a therapist and a client, although something happens in the session that's essential to the therapeutic process working. And that's the importance of relationship. Mm -hmm. But then the client is given tools that they apply for themselves to help them manage and transform their own condition. Sure. And if nothing else, they're given an experience of what's possible uh, and a way to replicate that experience. Yeah. And Uh, then they, and then if you have a good relationship, then you have faith in, let's come back to that word. Like I had faith. I came back from years in India and landed on Maui as a young man in the heyday of Ashtanga yoga. And so all the in people were doing Ashtanga yoga. That was a real moment historically yes, uh, it was. For, for the listeners who aren't necessarily aware of some of that history. We're, we're really talking about David Williams and his community yeah. that was centered in Maui uh, and not just in Maui, but like where you were in Maui because there's different sides to the Island. You were on that side of it. Uh, and yeah. Um, that was an early uh, hotbed of interest in and practice of the Ashtanga Yoga as taught by Patabi Joyce in, in Mysore. Yeah. And I remember you saying, not too tongue-in-cheek, but in all seriousness, that that really fueled your practice in large part for quite well, a while. Yeah. So let me let me just finish what I was, I want to get to that point about faith. So you know, all the, in, you know, I'm like 20 something. And so all these really beautiful men and women, you know, and, and right. young people that I wanted to make connections with, but I was like, I, the Ashtanga was, I could just see that it was a, a confusion. Sorry. You know, we can talk <laughs> about that later. I just could see the problems with it. With it. You're not saying anything but, uh, now that most senior Ashtanga people aren't, haven't been saying yeah, for a while, Gary. Yeah. <laughs> so in any case, my point is I had faith and we're talking about relate. This part of the conversation started about relationship. I had faith in Deskutar. Mm-hmm. I had faith in my teacher and his teacher and the power of the lineage that right. I received, and that helped me not lose my center in you know trying to get in into the in community. You know, what I mean that faith, that relationship gave me the strength mm. to stay grounded in what I knew to be right or true. And then coming back to what you said. Then, of course, uh, over time, the Ashtanga yogis found out about me because David and I were friendly uh-huh. and a good relationship. Um, and he knew about my relationship with Deskutari and Krishnamacharya, and, and he never met Krishnamacharya, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but slowly, his students and people in the Ashtanga community started to seek me out because they have, can you help me with this? Can you help me with that? Right. From, from a, a large percentage of them were structural injuries. But mm-hmm. there were some who said, I can't do this posture and the jump throughs aren't helping me. Can you help me prepare my body to get there? Hmm. So I helped Ashtanga yogis who wanted to go deeper into Ashtanga, yeah. but the bigger clientele were Ashtanga yogis who were injured. And that, that actually, hmm. the truth is that I was able to, over years, buy land and build a house on Maui from income earned by injured Ashtanga yogis. So. Yeah, that, that was... This- that was so, the yeah. comment you were fishing for. <laughs> no, no, no. But the other thing that just the thing that just popped in my head is this alternate universe in which, let's say that faith 
in what you had gotten from Deskachar, the connection with him wasn't really that strong at that point. And you yes. got sucked into the Ashtanga universe at that point. You, the former gymnast. Yeah, yeah. Who could have, who could have, you know, whipped through Ashtanga primary without too much trouble. I did third, I did first series the first week, yeah. second series the second week, third series the third week. And right. then I said enough. Right. So that's a gymnast just doing yeah, it. Yeah, I was a gymnast, right? Yeah. But, you know, I'm just picturing the alternative universe where Gary Krasow becomes one of the leaders of the Ashtanga community as, as that style of practice sweeps the globe. And it could never have happened for me. You know why? Here's what Deskajar said. Deskajar said, Gary, you're a brasta. And he didn't translate that, you know, so it took me a while to figure it out. And then later he said, fallen. And then what he really, what it really means is that I've been in this yoga path for lifetimes. That's kind of what he said later to me. Mm -hmm. And you just haven't completed. So you had to come back. He said his words literally were, don't think you know what you know about yoga from what you learned from me. So Brasta is like the opposite of a tulku where you come back. Yeah, it's, yeah. exactly. <laughs> exactly. I, di I didn't complete. I had to come back. But, you know, and he's talking about, he, he could see that my, in fact, that's why he said to me, why I, I told you that yoga is about preparation for the moment of death in your 20s, because you were already ready for that kind of teaching. Hmm. And, you know, I told you the last time I saw him after the break and we didn't see each other, he said, Gary, why are you holding back? Hmm. You know, because I was a religious studies student. And when I was young, studying with Desachar in the 70s and 80s, he said, you need to go, you need to go study Western medicine. And I said, why? And he said, because you're going to be bringing yoga therapy into Western healthcare. And I'm like, what? I'm a religious <laughs> studies student. Yeah. And so then, then the last time I saw him, which was in Colorado, he said, you should be teaching these inner teachings to your students. And I said, but you told me I was too young. He said, yeah, that was long ago. You're old now. It's time for you to share these inner teachings. Uh, and I don't think that would have ever happened for me with Ashtanga. Ashtanga is just, was, to me, just gymnastics. Right. So you know, we have a few minutes left in this first section here, and, and you brought it up at the perfect time because I did want to, I did have this idea of um, finishing off this part of the conversation with a few words about the last time both you and I so our teacher. Deep breath, yeah. I remember you coming to me and you were sitting, we were sitting together, you were crying. I mean, I don't know, crying, but you know, like you feel like you feel now. Like I'm know. trying not to do right now. Yeah. yeah. And it was shocking to see the level of mental decline. We were just like, oh my God. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Sad. So that was 2009, Estes Park, Colorado, at the uh, Yoga Journal Conference. Um at which Desikajar had taught a pre-conference uh, uh, event that he managed to get through with someone sitting close to him, assisting him. But we saw the keynote where he was sent alone up to the front. Oh, but the context there for you, which was different than me, because I had been seeing him in the intervening years, is, is it, how, how many years had it been? Eight years? Well, so my, it was 2001, right. I think, that right. I had, um, I just felt like it was going in a direction that was out of integrity with the teachings that I had received, and, and it was being, 
I, I understood from my perspective, it was not coming from him. It was coming from his son. Sure. And you're and, not alone in that, in, in other senior students of his yeah. who had the same kind of problem. Yeah. And maybe that was already an indication of the, the beginnings of his mental decline. I don't really know. Yeah. Um, I don't want to speculate. But so I just sort of took a break. I didn't feel in my heart that he was not my teacher. In fact, you know, when I saw him in Colorado, I talked with Menica and, you know, and, and I said, you know, and she knows he's been my teacher since I was 19 years old. Hmm. So I met him in 1974 and we're talking about 2000, you said 2009. Yeah. And she knew, she smiled and appreciated my comments. And, and Descachar felt very close to me then. And, you know, because we, our relationship was so long, but we didn't address any of that. Mm -hmm. Krishnamacharya healing, yoga healing foundation or whatever, that yeah. Yeah. was an attempt to take back, quote, control. Sure. And yeah, and everyone in the world had to stop using the term Vinaya Yoga, except, of course, you. Um, well, his father came to him in a dream. Yeah. You know the story, right? And, yeah. and told him that Gary should have should name his business American Vini Yoga Institute. He told me that right when I was in India with 16 students, right after I had just branded, I, I changed from Maui Yoga Therapy to Pacific Institute for Advanced Yoga Studies. You know, not yeah. that I know anything about branding, but that's what I had paid the cards and, you know. And he said, no, American Vini Yoga Institute. Father says, you must have it. You must have it. Hmm. So what can I say? He gave it to me. And so by at that point in 2009, all of that was water under the bridge. Yes. And I recall it just being love. You had, what, like four or something private chats with him over the course of those? Yeah, I had brain surgery. So he was asking yeah. me about that and giving yeah. me some practices. And it was just a very sweet connection. Mm. Um, and that was the last time, you know, there was love, only love. How fortunate that there was that opportunity for that. Um, yes, and definitely. he was still lucid enough to be able to connect with you and, you know, have yeah. the context for what transpired. Yeah. And, and, and specifically, you know, he avoided any discussion about this yeah. other thing that, that is just upsetting. And, mm -hmm. and what was left was the yoga, the pure yoga. And, you know, it's interesting. I, I think, you know, that I was with the Tibetans for 20 years. Yes. I was on the board of directors of a Maui, the Karma Rimeo Saling, which is a Maui Dharma center that was uh, established by Kalu Rinpoche. And then Lama Tenzin was the guy that he sent there. And that's another story. But I, Lama Tenzin was diagnosed with esophageal cancer. Mm. This is long ago. And I was with him the, you know, a lot the year he got diagnosed and month to month. And then in the last few months, he just became like, he, he didn't, he, he contacted Dalai Lama because he was from that Kaluk lineage um, and he contacted Dalai Lama and his, his Oracle did a, what's called a Mo. Mm -hmm. And the message was came back, release life mm -hmm. the message came back and he had faith, right? So he, didn't do treatment. Esophageal mm. cancer is not a pretty one, and the treatment's horrible. Yeah. And he just released life. So, and and you know, no treatment. And I was with him. The last time I was with him was like a week before he died. But in that last month, he became very thin, and he was very straight, and just eyes. And the personality slowly disappeared. 
And all that was there was pure consciousness and, and compassion for whoever he was with. And in a way that in that in, in I had closer contact at the end with him than I did with Eskishar, obviously that meeting in 2009. But in our experience, it was just eyes, love in his eyes, uh, light and 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 sharing deep teachings. Mm. And that was. And so for me, that was, you know, oh, and after that, he invited me to San Francisco because he went from Colorado to San Francisco. And he invited me to, uh, to, to come and I went and drove over to this church where he, that, that Chase had organized that. And Chase, it was like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, there was a couple hundred people in mm. the church and, and, and he asked me to, you know, just like that, to chant Gayatri and, mm. and, and, but it was, it was, you, you would, I, 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 I'm glad you weren't there in that moment because he went off a little bit and, you know, and Kasub didn't bring him back. And there was a few moments that were embarrassing for him, I feel. Where he, he, he just, uh, yeah. he was chanting, but he, he was chanting and his chanting was beautiful and powerful, uh-huh. but it, it got off into some hmm. funny, yeah. Anyway, I don't know if this part, you want to put this in public, but. Well. It's on the record, dude. <laughs> Everyone knows. Anyway, you and I both. So you're love talking to the guy. You're talking to the guy that outed his dementia on Elephant yes. Journal. So, yeah. you know, yeah. I caught a lot of crap for that, but that's a whole other story. There's no doubt that you had deep love, respect, and, and uh, love and respect for him, and gratitude for him, as did I. And uh, yeah. And, and I know that my life, and I don't, I don't want to speak for you, but my whole life has been shaped by what I've learned from him. Uh, and uh, so I will be forever grateful to him. And also, you know, I had the good fortune, which there's not many of us alive still that had some kind of connection to Krishna Charya. Yeah. I had the good fortune of, of receiving personalized teachings mm-hmm. like this Viveka Kyati mm-hmm. and Purusha Nishwar Kyati from him. And that just their perspective was... Mm-hmm. Is it, it, it's so simple and profound and practical and accessible. When you look at what's out there in yoga in the world today, it's uh, it's the, the approach is accessible, but access to people who were immersed in it the way Krishnacharya and Desikachar were is really no longer accessible. The 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 India in which Krishnacharya was educated no longer exists in large part. Uh, The situation in which Desikachar found himself living with his teacher, uh, that doesn't exist. Uh, And so it's up to folks like you. uh, I mean, you know where it does exist? Like I'll say it's not the same, of course, but, you know, Pandit Rajmani and his son, Mm. who runs the Himalayan Institute Mm. now, that's, that's as close as I can see. There's a thread there. Yeah, there's yeah. a thread that goes back. Uh, yeah. But those, these are increasingly rare in rare. this world, yeah. is what I'm saying. And yeah. um, thank goodness uh, you've been able to keep at it all these years. And you have students who are now teachers, who have their own students who are teachers. And that's that's the parampara. So, yes, I was going to say sampradaya. Yes, parampara. Yeah, correct. So I can't think of a better note to end the first uh, section of this uh, talk with Gary Kraftsau, my good old yoga buddy for so many years. 
Um, the premium part of this will be available to subscribers to breathingproject.com. Um, and you can see the full video of this conversation we just had and what is to come uh, if you uh, log in there. Um, and you can do it for free for a month. Uh, try it out, see if you like it. And there's a ton of material there. Mm -hmm.